Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. This episode of Homestead in the Corner was brought to you by our supporters on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show, then please go to patreon.com slash homesteadcorner. For as little as $1 a month, you get early access to all new episodes, a special patron-only podcast, and exclusive behind-the-scenes content. Good morning, everyone. This is Trevor Van Winkle, and you're listening to Homestead on the Corner. Welcome back, everyone, and thank you so much for your patience during our brief hiatus. With the Sheridan tapes starting to get underway, I just needed a bit of time to focus on developing the series and producing the last couple of episodes. But now that the show is building up ahead of steam, I'm ready to get back to the homestead and finish up the back half of Season 2. So, without further ado, Lesson 21. When we last left off, we were a little ways into the second act. The world, the characters, and the thematic question of the story had all been set up, an inciting incident had disrupted the balance of the protagonist's reality, and they'd crossed the threshold into an extraordinary world. Everything they thought they knew was flipped on its head, and now it's sink or swim time. They've met a new cast of supporting characters, some of whom will help them, and some of whom will do everything in their power to stop them from reaching their goal. And the protagonist does have a goal now, and a plan to make it happen. One that will almost certainly not work the first time around. Some of these new characters also have their own wants, needs, and plans, and their pursuits of these goals generate subplots and help increase the narrative tension and pacing of the main plot. But for the most part, I've kind of treated the second act as fairly straightforward. In fact, I've talked mostly about world-building and character design, but that's not really what the second act is about, structurally speaking. You need to develop new characters and facets to the second act story world, of course, but from a plot perspective... While the first act introduces the conflict and the final act resolves it, the job of the second act is to introduce major complications. The second act should be where the stakes escalate the most in your story, as the protagonist or protagonists take bigger and bigger risks, face more dangerous setbacks, and discover that they have more to lose than they initially thought. To demonstrate this idea, let me tell you a story. This weekend, I decided to go for a bit of a hike. I wasn't 100% sure where I wanted to go, But I knew I wanted to get onto Mammoth Crest at the end of it, a massive mountainous ridge that sits at the edge of the wilderness boundary and affords some of the best views in the eastern Sierra. I knew I didn't want to go up the main trail though, so I planned an alternate route around the back, past a small fishing lake and up a trail I'd tried and failed to find several times in the past. I set off in the early morning, made it to the lake, then continued into the Ansel Adams wilderness, looking for the turnoff. 
After failing to find any sign of it, I took off cross-country, hoping to intercept the trail at some point. Eventually, I did find a trail and began to follow it, but it slowly grew steeper and steeper as I approached the crest. The ground turned from solid packed dirt to loose gravel and sand, and soon I found myself scrambling and slipping up the side of a nearly vertical slope. Soon I was nearly to the top, but the trail, if it was even a trail at that point, disappeared about 50 vertical feet from the top. With about 900 feet of loose gravel below me, I couldn't afford to lose my footing, and several times I realized just how precarious my position was in a place where a slip-up would hurt me the most. By the way kids, don't try what I did. Stick to trails you know are well-maintained and safe. It wasn't half as fun as it sounds, and I was only able to get out of it unscathed because of my experience in these mountains, having the right equipment, and honestly no small amount of luck. Eventually I did make it to the top, and back down, obviously. But I think the experience demonstrated how escalation should work within the second act's plot structure. The risks become greater as the going becomes harder, and it doesn't just happen gradually or constantly. As I hiked, I rounded corners, broke through tree lines, or discovered new hazards and difficulties in the path I'd chosen. Several times I thought I was reaching the end, but discovered I was only just beginning. In other words, the hike, like a good story, was full of reversals and revelations. And that's what we're going to talk about in today's episode. Before we begin, let's set out our tools and see how they work. A revelation is any discovery by the protagonist that alters their trajectory through the story. I say a discovery by the protagonist because, as with the inciting incident, anything that the audience or reader knows that the protagonist doesn't cannot affect their course of action or personal journey. Having the audience know something before the protagonist is a great way to generate dramatic irony or suspense, but it generally doesn't do what a revelation is supposed to. That is, alter their trajectory, plan, and goal within the story. To do that, the protagonist needs to learn the truth themselves, typically about at the same time as the reader does. This is not always the case, but in stories that depend on revelations for major plot beats, it's usually the best approach. This not only ensures that there are no awkward gaps where the audience becomes frustrated with the protagonist for not realizing something they already know, but also increases the reader's connection and empathy by creating a moment of shared revelation with the characters. If the protagonist and the audience both have the same reaction to a revelation, then the information revealed becomes more memorable and powerful. A reversal, on the other hand, is a revelation that completely changes the character's overarching goal, point of view, or understanding of past events. One of the most famous fictional reversals of all time comes at the end of The Empire Strikes Back, when Darth Vader announces he's Luke's father. Up until that point, Luke's goal has been to destroy the Empire and kill Vader, the Empire's most prominent representative and the man who murdered his mentor. However, when he learns that Vader is really the father he never got to know, his goal turns 180 degrees from killing the Dark Lord to redeeming him, and in the process, changing the nature of the Star Wars franchise as a whole. In The Anatomy of Story by John Truby, he says, quote, The most powerful of all reveals is known as a reversal. This is a reveal in which the audience's understanding of everything in the story is turned on its head. End quote. In John York's Into the Woods, a five-act journey into structure, 
He likens story reversals to the Aristotelian concept of peripatia, which York calls a reversal of fortunes, and quotes from the Poetics to describe it as a change to the opposite in the actions being performed, in accordance with probability and necessity. Now that's a long, dense mess of quotes, but what I want to draw out of them is that reversals occur in your story when a piece of information that is fundamental to the character's understanding of themselves, the events in the plot, and their own worldview is revealed to be incorrect or incomplete in a way that is logical, in accordance with probability or necessity, and will fundamentally alter their trajectory through the story. When I talk about a character's trajectory, I mean the series of actions they plan to take in order to achieve their goal. When the trajectory is altered by a revelation, it is usually because one or more steps in that plan are proven to be impossible or unhelpful in reaching the same goal. On the other hand, reversals usually lead to a change in the protagonist's ultimate goal, or their want to use the more traditional term. While their inner need will remain the same throughout the story, the way they seek to fulfill it changes almost completely at the point of reversal, as in the Star Wars example. But on a cautionary note, Reversals cannot just come out of nowhere for the sake of shock value or an interesting twist. To do so ruins the fundamental appeal of a well-executed revelation. That is, the feeling that the truth was just outside our grasp the whole time, and we could have guessed it for ourselves if we'd tried hard enough. Surprisingly, one of my favorite examples of this comes from a toy line from the early 2000s. From 2001 to 2010, the LEGO company produced a series of buildable action figures and an accompanying multimedia franchise entitled Bionicle. The line was centered on a universe of half-mechanical, half-organic beings with elemental powers and featured a plot that jumped across several different island settings throughout the almost decade-long serialized story. The overarching goal of the series was to awaken the Great Spirit, a divine protector figure from an unnatural slumber caused by his evil brother, Makuta. As the world developed from a simple science fantasy to a sprawling sci-fi epic, several odd quirks began to emerge. On the original island of Matanui, there always seemed to be another layer of subterranean tunnels and caves below the ones we already knew, packed with strange mechanical devices and creatures. In later years, it was discovered that another, bigger island existed in a massive dome below Matanui, along with a larger world of other biomechanical civilizations. In the final years, the story moved into a new setting, yet another layer down, a massive cavern that the inhabitants referred to as the heart of the universe. This was all odd, but as you can probably tell from my brief description, odd was kind of par for the course, and so these were just accepted quirks. But then, in the final moments of the 2008 story arc, the heroes accomplished their goal, and the great spirit awoke. And my little brain exploded when it saw a colossal robot emerge from beneath the island of Matanui. The entire story world, it turned out, was built on top of and within the Great Spirit Robot, an enormous machine created to explore the universe beyond. The islands below the surface were built inside its chassis and formed its internal workings, and the heart of the universe was literally the robot's heart, a power generator the size of a small continent. But then, as though that wasn't enough of a reveal, the writers threw a massive reversal into the mix and turned victory into defeat. The main antagonist, Makuta, overwrote the Great Spirit's mind-slash-operating system just before he awoke and took control of the entire universe. Again, a turn that had been set up with a similar attention to detail several years before it happened. Now, as someone who had been following the ongoing story for seven years at that point, it's hard for me to overstate how profoundly this moment affected me. 
It simultaneously changed everything I thought I knew about the story world, created the cathartic release of seeing the heroes accomplish their goal, and then turned the whole thing on its ear in one of the most ironic and well-earned twist endings I've ever seen in science fiction. Okay, perhaps I'm exaggerating a bit, but it was an incredible storytelling moment at the time, especially for a kid's toy line. But even in this brief description, I hope you see why it worked. Even though it was a story created to sell toys, it obeyed the Aristotelian demands of peripatia, probability and necessity, discovery, and reversal of fortunes. Or at the very least, it gets close enough to let me geek out over one of my first and greatest nerd loves for a while. It also demonstrates the fundamental way revelations and reversals are linked, and how they should be ordered in your story. Throughout the seven years leading up to that reversal, a series of smaller revelations gave the plot a sense of momentum, intrigue, and structure by building on top of each other. John Truby's The Anatomy of Story lists three rules for ordering your revelations effectively within the plot. Quote, 1. The sequence of revelations must be logical. 2. They must build in intensity. And 3. The reveals must come at an increasing pace. End quote. In other words, your revelations must make sense for the point in the story they occur, be more powerful than the ones that came before, so long as doing so doesn't break the logic of your plot, and become more frequent as you approach the climax. All of this allows the story to pick up pace and take on additional layers of meaning as new revelations reshape what the reader already thought they knew. And once the proper revelations have been set up, a big reveal can be used to shake them to their core. For another example, let's look at Bong Joon-ho's Snowpiercer again. That entire film is built around one revelation and reversal after another, but that becomes even more true in its final moments. And huge spoilers ahead, obviously. Having fought their way from the back of the train to the front of the locomotive, the protagonist Curtis learns, in rapid succession, that the post-apocalyptic world outside might not be as dead as he was taught, that his mentor figure was actually in league with the train's creator and ruler, Mr. Wilford, that the revolution he led was socially engineered to cull the lower-class population, and that Wilford wants Curtis to take over and run the train when he's gone. <laughs> and we're still only halfway to the final curtain. Curtis almost gives in to the temptation of power and ease, but then learns that Wilford has been using children kidnapped from the lower-class population to replace worn-out components within the train's inner workings. That final reversal spins out into an absolutely bonkers climax that continues to turn right up to the final image and the film, which might have been just a generic post-apocalyptic action flick in the hands of a lesser writer, becomes an unforgettable rollercoaster of emotions because of well-set-up and paid-off revelations and reversals. There are, however, several fine lines you have to walk in order to make revelations and reversals work within a story, and it largely comes down to planning, attention to detail, and understanding your reader's expectations. If you want to follow Truby's three rules and set up an effective series of revelations and reversals while still maintaining the story's internal logic, you need to know the major reversals that will occur within your story before you begin writing. That's not to say you need to plan out every revelation beat by beat before you get started. Oftentimes, building to those moments in real time allows character actions and the organic developments in the plot to inform the flow of the narrative. However, you do need to deliver your revelations and reversals in a satisfying and logical manner, and that requires you to at least know your endgame and when major revelations need to occur by. This is because, as a general rule, placing a setup revelation just before the payoff reversal is less satisfying to the reader than spacing them out. Let me explain. 
If you reveal some piece of information that is critical to one of your reversals early in the plot, say in your first act, then when the reversal occurs in the second act, everything between that initial revelation and the payoff reversal takes on a new meaning. What we assumed a certain revelation and everything that followed meant is overlaid with a new information at the moment of reversal, giving the reader the intellectual pleasures of both recognition and surprise at the same time. There are few things outside of storytelling capable of such a feat. In order to really pull that off, though, you need to know and plan ahead for your revelations. You need to earn that exciting twist in order for it not to feel like a gimmicky cheat. I think that most of us can think of at least one mystery story that ended with a detective pulling a hitherto unknown piece of evidence from their pocket and using it to solve the case. Sure, we get the satisfaction of seeing the hero win, but that's not what we primarily come to the mystery genre for. We can get that in virtually any other story. The main appeal of the mystery genre is the feeling that we have enough of the clues before the climax to solve the case ourselves. In other words, we've had sufficient revelations up to that point to make the final reversal feel satisfying. Of course, my mind immediately goes to Star Wars as a possible exception to this rule, since George Lucas did not originally plan to have Darth Vader be Luke's father. However, that reversal works through a combination of clever writing in the second film and the lack of any real interaction between the characters in the first movie. It also does what a good reversal should do. It forces the mind of the viewer to go all the way back to the very beginning of the story and see new meaning in old words. We think about everything Obi-Wan told Luke about his father and Darth Vader, the only ex-Jedi we've heard anything about besides Yoda and Kenobi. We realize that either Obi-Wan was lying when he told Luke that Vader betrayed and murdered his father, or else Vader is lying. That reversal sets up further revelations in the third film, and then a final reversal in Anakin's ultimate sacrifice to save his son and destroy the Emperor. This just goes to show that a well-executed reversal does not necessarily have to be planned from day one, so long as it is executed with enough care and attention to detail that it fits with the rest of the story both logically and thematically. The oft-quoted bad twist endings are the revelation that it was all a dream or such-and-such such character was actually dead the entire time. Personally, I think either of those two endings can work, and work really well, but only if they do what reversals are supposed to. Add additional, relevant meaning to the story that came before, and push it in a new, more interesting direction. The this character was dead twist was popularized by The Sixth Sense, but it absolutely worked in that film because it fit the film's story and premise, and M. Night Shyamalan spent the entire film setting it up with subtle visual and storytelling cues. It Was All a Dream is implied by the ending of Inception, and since the entire film was about dreams within dreams and questioning reality, I don't think there was a single legitimate complaint about that ending other than, well, I don't like ambiguous endings personally. The reason these now cliché twists don't work most of the time is that they're often bolted onto an existing ending that, for whatever reason, the author doesn't think is good enough. And it's easy to understand why. Films, books, and other stories that pull off powerful reversals like that create a deep impression on the reader or viewer, and we want to do the same with our work. It also doesn't help that those films were, rightly, showered with praises and acolytes when they were first released, and writers who were just getting started around the same time, like myself, have a tendency to think that only big, shocking twists make money and win awards. But as I've said ad nauseum in this episode, reversals have to be earned. The bigger the reversal, the more setup it needs. To pull off a reversal that alters the meaning of the entire story from start to finish? Well, if toy lines from the early 2000s are any indication, you'd better spend about seven years preparing for it.
On a somewhat similar note, while I spent a lot of time talking about using revelations to earn your big reversals, it's also worth pointing out that you need to earn your revelations too. Or rather, you need to make sure your characters earn them. Now this is not a hard fast rule, but in my experience, the best revelations come at a cost to the characters. The more important the revelation, the more it costs. For instance, in The Fellowship of the Ring, the revelation of Saruman's treachery costs Gandalf a great deal of pain and several months at the top of Orthanc Tower. In the podcast The Magnus Archives, knowledge, particularly of the arcane and supernatural, always has a high cost that almost always leaves a physical scar on the protagonist. It doesn't need to be a physical cost, however, it could be an interpersonal cost, calling in a favor that costs your protagonist social credit with one of their allies, or even turns them entirely against your hero. It could also be the loss of a relationship, when the revelation also reveals one of the character's secrets. It could simply be a cost of time and effort to search out the answers in an obscure place, so long as the search seems like a challenge and is memorable to the reader. That's really the key to this technique, turning the lead-up to your revelation into a setup of its own in order to make the knowledge gained more memorable to the audience. I've talked about attaching vital plot information to memorable characters and events in the past, but it's especially important here, particularly if your revelations are linked to a bigger reversal down the line. As they should be. And finally, you should always keep the experience of your reader in the back of your mind when writing your revelations and reversals. You absolutely don't want to pander to your audience and either give them only what they want or telegraph your reversals too early, but you do need to manage their level of knowledge and expectations throughout the narrative. For instance, in the climactic battle of The Empire Strikes Back, the audience expects the fight to end either with Luke killing Vader or Vader capturing Luke. As the fight goes back and forth with a delightful tension, both conclusions seem likely at several different points. But then, Vader cuts off Luke's hand, towers over him as he tries to flee, and then drops the bombshell. I am your father. No one was expecting it. No one in the audience knew they wanted it until it happened. But the moment he said those words, cinematic history was made, and it was all because audience expectations were subverted in a way that fit logically and thematically into the story and enriched it with new layers of meaning. And so, in short, revelations and reversals are powerful storytelling tools that can either elevate your narrative to new heights or bring the reader's suspension of disbelief crashing down, depending on how well you execute them. Write them carefully, being conscious of the fact that a payoff is nothing without a good setup. Plan them as much as you can, but be open to new and interesting ideas so long as they actually fit into the internal logic of the story as a whole. Then do as much work as you can to strengthen their setup. Pace and measure your revelations for escalation and rising intensity throughout the second act, and find a compelling plot structure to support that sequence. And remember, the protagonist should be in the most dangerous place of all when the ground slips out from under their feet, so make sure we feel the same thrill and terror when we're reading your story. Thank you for listening to this episode of Homestead on the Corner. Today's Revelation recitation was written and produced by Trevor Van Winkle and featured music from Lauren Baker. Speaking of twists and suspense, our brand new fiction podcast, The Sheridan Tapes, is now live on all podcasting platforms. To find out where to listen to it, head over to thesheridantapes.com for show links and more info. 
In the meantime, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Trevor underscore VW for updates on both of our shows, and check out patreon.com slash homesteadcorner if you want to support our little production team. Next episode, we hit the middle of Act 2 and discuss how to use the midpoint as the structural anchor of the entire plot. New episodes of this podcast are released every Wednesday at 2pm Pacific Standard Time, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss it. Well, that's about all for now. From the homestead in the corner, have a great day and keep riding. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.